Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we're going to be talking about the 1938 film Bringing a Baby. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Thanks. Um, I am really excited to talk with you about this film. This is a film that um, I can't remember if this was on your um, five movies you love we did in the first episode. I feel like it maybe was. Yeah, it was actually because I remember okay. saying yeah, I was trying to get a movie from each decade in different genres. So this is gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So uh, maybe let's start with our usual question. Tell me about your history with this film, and also I'm actually curious your history with the the two stars of this film. So Cary yeah. Grant, Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. So my my history with the film is uh, it's a film I've only seen on on DVD. I uh, can't recall when I first saw it, but I was mostly got to know the film because I used it in. Um, my film theory and interpretation class uh, to uh, to talk about genre, uh, specifically talk about screwball comedy. Um, Cary Grant's, uh, I just I just love I just love Cary Grant. Um, I've, I can't remember how many Cary Grant films I've seen, um, but he's a he's a brilliant actor both in, in his ability to handle both verbal and physical comedy. Um, and when Hollywood tried to give him darker roles, they always kind of pulled back from uh, letting him fully inhabit darker roles. So this film, along with um, another one of my favorite Grant films that he also made with Howard Hawks, is um, I Was a Male War Bride, uh, which, is, which is really excellent. Um, and then Catherine Hepburn, uh, again, she's an actress I've enjoyed in a lot of different films. Probably uh, African Queen, though, with Humphrey Bogart is, uh, is one of my favorites. But she made, as people probably know, a whole bunch of films with Spencer Tracy. Uh, they made nine films together, uh, Pat and Mike, uh, among others. And those are films that also kind of feature a battle of the sexes, uh, although in a slightly different mode than in Bringing Up Baby. So she, uh, she had a, a wide range as an actress, actually. So I'm going to start with a confession um, that I came into this film with I knew nothing about it other than I knew it involved a big cat. Cause like I've seen <laughs> enough pictures to know that, but I didn't know if that was going to be like a prominent part of the film or that was just a famous scene. Turns out it's a big part of the film. Right. Um, so I didn't know anything about it, but I have to admit, and I don't entirely know why I am not a huge Catherine Hepburn fan. So that's a little bit of baggage I brought to this. And it's not a matter of, I dislike her as an actor and she's a very good actress. And there are certain roles where I, um, African queen, for example, I think like, that's a really interesting interplay in there. Uh, but it's never a selling point to me. It's never mm -hmm. like if you were trying to say, oh, you're going to love this movie. Catherine Hepburn is in it. It's like that one. That's not something that um, that, that that necessarily excites me. So I, when I found out she was in this, I'm like, OK, well, I'm going to have that. Um, so here's the thing that's going to make this conversation. Um, I told you beforehand, I've thought more about this episode than anything else. I did not love this movie. <laughs> Oh no. Um oh, and it's not again it's not that I disliked it but like I really think this one's not for me. Okay. And, I, and, and and we're going to we'll get into a little bit of this. So usually when I prepare for these I write a bunch of questions for you. Everything I wrote was less of a question and more of like a me trying <laughs> to kind of defend why why this one's not for me. And I don't want to be very careful but I'm saying I don't think it's a bad movie. I actually like there were moments that I thought were funny in it but as a whole the experience as a whole was not like um, something that that I loved. Now, I compare this a little bit to when I was in graduate school. I I was a in the a history program, and I did a lot of I did a lot of American studies courses because there's a lot of crossover between American studies and American history. If you're looking at cultural history things, and I ended up writing a lot of papers in graduate school on jazz, and I love writing papers on jazz. Jazz is a very interesting thing to study. <laughs> 
but the problem is I don't really like listening to the music that much. Like it's like, I love, I understand it intellectually. And I feel that way about this movie. Like mm. I read a lot of reviews. I let a, read a lot of people writing about it. I listened to podcasts about it because I had this, this feeling when I sat down and watched it on Monday, I was like, Oh, this isn't for me. But, but, but that's, that's a point that I came to in graduate school is like, it's okay. I, I want to reach a point in life where it's okay to say like, I appreciate this thing. And I appreciate that this is important to other people. But sometimes those things just don't land for me. So, uh, so we'll we'll get into to sort of why that is. But one thing that I that I uh, encountered as I was going as I was sort of processing this this week, I'm glad I watched this on Monday because I've had a week to think about it. Um, I listened to the episode of Unspooled on Bringing Up Baby. So it's the film critic uh, Amy Nicholson and the comedian Paul Shear um, talking about this, and they they use this as a launching point to talk about why, if you look at something like the AFI top 100 list, why there's very few comedies on there. And this one is on there. Mm-hmm. And the, the argument that, that Sheer made is that when you think about drama or you think about even action, right? Um, uh, there is, it's, it's kind of easy to say like, this is a good story. This is a good drama, but, but he says comedy is way more subjective that mm-hmm. there's, there's such a wide range of sort of what lands with people and what doesn't land with people. So this made me sort of wonder, like, like what are your favorite comedy movies? I realize I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit, but, but like just at, 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 at first glance, when, if I were to say, you know, what are some of your favorite comedy movies? What are the things that pop into your head right away? Well, I, I, I definitely go, go for, uh, uh, for Sturgis, Preston Sturgis, as you probably can anticipate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll say uh, Palm Beach Story. Um, and then I've already mentioned Male War Bride, um, and then um, probably uh, Some Like It Hot, okay, and uh, uh, Groundhog Day, which we've which we've watched, um, and then and then I would go with something darker like Doctor Strangelove, okay, so, absolutely, yeah. So so the 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 two two movies jump to mind right away. I didn't want to overthink this and like like you know because I realized I was putting you on the spot. So like. To me, my favorite comedy of all time is The Big Lebowski. I think that's the funniest movie I've ever seen. I've yep. seen it hundreds of times. And then I love the comedies of Christopher Guest. I think oh, Spinal Tap. I think oh. Spinal Tap also may be the funniest movie of all time. And Waiting for Guffman. Though, so those three movies. Uh, and I think the reason I want to ask that question is I think that tells a little bit about sort of what we look for in a comedy. Um, well, a little bit. I'm with you on all of those. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so here was my, my first impression. So I'm going to, I'm going to lay some of the things that I encountered out and then I want to get to sort of why you love this movie. So I want to get my baggage out of the way because I really do want to hear you talk about, I want people listening to hear somebody who really loves this movie. Talk about it. Here's the thing. So I was watching this for the first time in 2020. Um, I think this probably watches different if this is your first encounter with it. Cause I kept having things that probably people wouldn't have thought so much about. Ah, uh, some of them maybe, but definitely in twenty twenty. So I kept thinking about mental health when I watched this movie. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like deeply concerned about the Susan character. Something doesn't, you know. And I think to the point where I kept watching it, thinking mm. like I don't know that this is that this is adorable. What I'm encountering, like this is something mm. I kind of want to want to help find help. But the movie doesn't seem to say she has a problem. Right. necessarily it's like so and I, that maybe just reads different in in 2020 the way we think about that um another one is the sort of the idea of the fact that susan is coming from a very wealthy background 
So there's this sort of wealth, privilege, and lack of consequences to her actions. Yes. You know, and that, uh, and I, I feel weird saying that bothered me, but like, but I mean, it, she steals two cars in this movie and it's just sort of like playful. And it's like, and, and, and there is this sense behind it would, this movie would be so different. I think if the thing that Susan has is a connection to the million dollars. Now she doesn't have the million dollars, but she has a connection to it. So like she can, she's tells um, Dr. Huxley that he's going to help her fix this situation. Right. So there, there is that. Um, and also she seems to live in a world where she can just kind of go through life and, and there aren't those consequences. I would feel like it would be different if she wasn't in that sort of high status situation where, where if she could do whatever she want, because she had sort of nothing to lose, it would feel different. Um, but, but I don't know, like, like that, something about that struck me as, as, um, as very strange. So sort of different than, um, like I loved Sullivan's travels. That's I, somebody asked me what, this is our 20th episode, what my favorite movie we watched was. And of the movies I hadn't seen before, Sullivan's travels is, is a movie that's very high for me. I, I love that. And there was something different about this and that. Um, I thought Sullivan had. Sullivan had a problem. Like he was very wealthy, but he had a problem. He was wrestling with that idea and he had a problem with the type of movies he was making. And I feel like there was an arc to that. I even look at like the Dr. Huxley character, uh, the, um, why am I blanking on his first name? Cary Grant character, David. Um, uh, like at the beginning, I'm not entirely sure what his problem is. Or like who has a problem? Who has an art? Like I, I like I don't know that I, that I have those reads. It, um, it was also interesting to think about um, uh, Howard Hawks himself came from a very very wealthy uh, wealthy background. Well, you know the a child of very wealthy people. So like I I just thought so I was thinking about that as I watched it. And then the last issue that reads weird in 2020 to me, um, and this is a much smaller thing, is the idea of owning big cats as pets. You know, in a world of Tiger King, I just like that just read very different to me of like, this is a terrible thing, you know, in, in my mind. So, I mean, th those are those are tiny little things. But but I will say they definitely colored the way, uh, especially I think the mental health one and the like something about the consequence free way that uh, that Susan Susan lived like, I don't know, something about that didn't land uh, great for me. Um I also, in terms of the comedy, and this is this is the last point point I'll make, and then I'll I'll cede the floor. Are you a big Marx Brothers fan? Um, I don't I don't know if I would say I'm a big fan. I I like the Marx Brothers, although I haven't watched many of their films in recent years. Okay, so I recently, uh, within the last year, I think I watched one or two of their films, and it this rem in a weird way reminded me of them, which is like I find them funny but there also hits a point of tedium pretty quickly and i felt like there were times where this did as well where it's like mm -hmm. i get the joke mm -hmm. but like I, I i don't know and and um at the same time like this is i do like very like the part of the marx brothers i like the most is groucho because i like the talky part of it and this yeah. movie definitely has that stuff in it which i like but there is there there are sort of these mo moments. Maybe some of the physical stuff is a little more tedious to me, or or something. So, um, so those are those are things that that I that I encountered watching this. But now I want to talk about why you love this film, and I want to talk about why this film is interesting, great, important. I just wanted to get my baggage out of the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting, Sam. I, I do want to engage that a, a little bit, and that is that. Um, I mean, the 
the, the, the most obvious way to discuss some of the issues you have with the film is to say that it's a film that, for which it was difficult for you to suspend disbelief. Absolutely. Um, in, in other words, you know, we've talked a little bit about films that kind of relate to the real world and films that don't necessarily relate to the real world. And, I, and I'm glad you kind of brought up the Christopher Guest films because, you know, even though those are um, either, they're, well, they're all documentaries. Mm -hmm. um, so in a sense, they're very much engaged with the real world, but at the same time, they operate in a way that they kind of create their own little universe. Uh, and, and you're very comfortable with the way people behave within that universe. So for whatever reason, the universe created by bringing up baby wasn't one that enabled you to leave behind uh, the universe in which we, in which we live. Um, so I would say one, one, re one function of the, of the screwball comedy films and it's very interesting you brought up the issue of, of, of Susan's class privilege because this is a film that came out in the towards the end of the Depression, 1938. Mm -hmm. Screwball comedy originated in the Depression. Uh, first screwball comedy is probably it happened one night in 1934. And the high, the high day of, of screwballs from really 30, 40, 1934 to early 40s. And one of the things that screwball did was it offered a kind of escapist entertainment for... The, the huddled masses who mm -hmm. could watch these people who had, a, who had enormous privilege behave in extremely silly ways. So in a way, you could see the Gogarty character, you know, the, the tippling groundskeeper, you could see him as a kind of Greek chorus for the audience, uh, even though he himself is somewhat satirized as a kind of stock, you know, um, drunken Irish character, which mm -hmm. you could also object to. At the same time, he's there passing judgment on the insanity of these rich people running, running around behaving in such a privileged way. So to me, that's how, to a certain degree, the social historical context of the film maybe helps, helps explain how it would have landed with that audience a, a little bit differently. Um, it's also interesting to me that in the film, uh, we do have a psychiatrist, um, right, a, right. I did find that very interesting. Who, who himself is, who himself showed up years later in the um, uh, the, the uh, space the the film up the space Lost in Space. He showed up on Lost in Space in the 1960s. Anyway, um, so the film itself is aware of the of the potential issue of what this crazy behavior means, um, but the film also covers it by uh, by telling us that the it's the love impulse which frequently expresses itself in terms of conflict so um that in a sense kind of says don't worry the people people are acting crazy because that's what you do when you're in love so susan's in love with david he doesn't yet know that he needs to fall in love with her so if if i want to accept the challenge of talking about a character's arc in this film and part of this will tie into why i love the movie uh, the arc here is that David doesn't know that he is, as one critic said, in danger of becoming a fossil himself. And one of the ways this, this comes out is the first scene of this film is amazingly economical. Uh, he achieves, Hawks achieves so much in terms of exposition, character conflict, setting up the plot in just those first five to seven minutes. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, but what we see in there is that this is a film about sexual repression. Uh, and about connecting love and sex in a way that has not been connected, is not connected with him and Mrs. Swallow. So talking about sex isn't necessarily funny, but talking about sex without talking about sex is. So, and, and when I've taught this class, I've, I felt a little bit like a dirty professor because I've had to explain to students that they're missing dirty jokes. Right, right. Uh, right, so he stands there with a the tailbone. Um, I think this belongs in the tail. 
And Miss Swallow says, no, you tried it in the tail yesterday. Um, we have him uh, being very disappointed that they're not going to go on a honeymoon. Mm -hmm. Everybody or have children or, yeah. or have children. And she says, this is very important. She says, our marriage must involve no domestic entanglements of any kind. And he says, of any kind. Now, we know in 1938, there's no pill. Uh, so if there's if you're not gonna have children, you're not gonna have sex. Mm -hmm. So so the film so to me the film sets up David as a repressed character who doesn't know his repression, doesn't know that his own identity is not actually who he is. And so when he gets labeled Mr. Bone, not only is that clearly sexualized, but it also suggests that he is in danger of, in danger of ossification. So if there is an arc in the film, it's the arc in the film is is Grant character Huxley discovering his real self um, so at the end of the film you'll notice significantly he's no longer wearing his glasses mm -hmm. um, losing losing the glasses is a um, uh, because she stepped on them right uh, lo lose, losing the glasses is a is a, is a, is a signal is a change in, in his in his identity so one of the things that I so anyway so to explain so it's the it's the at one level, it's simply the cleverness of the repartee. It's the way that um, the Hepburn character is able to turn uh, everything upside down. Uh, he says it to her at one point, every, you know, everything you look at, you look at upside down. Uh, he tells the psychiatrist it will never be clear as long as she is explaining it. So, <laughs> so, so I, I understand what you mean about with the Marx Brothers is sometimes it reaches the point of tedium, but with this film for me, it's it's the combination and the alternation of the physical comedy and and and, and the verbal comedy that, that makes it work. One more thing about David at the beginning of the film: when we first see David, he's in the classic thinker pose, right? He's uh, he's he's echoing Rodin's sculpture, uh, and he adopts that pose again in the in the house when he's sitting at the bottom of the stairs. So David is a guy who is all about the brain, and she's trying to bring him into touch with the heart, and maybe even areas lower lower down. So one of the things that I discovered about this film, which I, was a connection I had not made before, is that the Hepburn character as seen as, um, I don't know if you know this trope of the manic pixie dream girl. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, so, so, she, so she's seen as, in many ways, maybe the first, the first instance of the manic pixie dream girl. So uh, that was, that was a, 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 coin, a phrase coined after uh, Elizabethtown where um, the Kirsten Dunst character was described as the manic pixie dream girl. So um, kind of a ray of sunshine sent from heaven uh, to readjust the attitude of the life of the, uh, of the, of the male protagonist. Do you, I'll, oh, sorry. I'll make one more, I'll make one more okay. connection. And we can go more into this a little more if you want. The other connection I would make to is to a lot of Shakespeare's uh, green comedies and most notably uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, in fact, I tried to find out and I didn't have time to do adequate research. I had the, I feel like the night scenes in this film, which has a lot more night scenes than a typical screwball, mm -hmm. I feel like the night scenes are intended to echo or recapture the look of Max Reinhardt's 1935 film of Midsummer Night's Dream. In fact, I tried to find out if they used the same studio, but I didn't get that far. Huh. Yeah, I will say definitely in my reading, and, and this is and this is where I will again compare it to jazz. Like in my reading, I appreciated different things. And when I was reading people sort of talking about Kind of an echoing of of Shakespeare things, and those was like, oh yeah, that actually like like that that makes sense to me. Um, do you do you buy that David loves Susan by the end of the movie? 
because that that mean that again and i i feel like like maybe that's i don't know like i just i don't i maybe i just didn't feel a connection between the two of them so like when he would say things like you know i'm strangely drawn to you and it's like really like i i, I just i i i felt like i was and and maybe i'm missing something when i'm watching this well, and at the well, end it's like you want to be i just never get like why do you want to be with this person at all well he does qualify that Right, yeah. right. <laughs> I understand that. But the, the moment, fact that the he says it all to someone like her. Yeah, he says in, mean, moments, like, in moments of quiet, I'm certainly drawn toward you, but there haven't been any. So right. no, wait, I haven't been drawn, strangely drawn toward you. Well, okay, so I think I think there's two, there's at least two answers to that question, maybe three. Um, I think the first one is, um, and it's the least satisfactory one, which is it's the, it's the demand of the genre. Mm-hmm. That, that that's there's there's no point to the, to a story like this unless he has that realization right um, but you still have to pull it off yeah 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 um right okay and uh and and and, and in, in terms of the, the in terms of the structure of the film the fact that it comes back to the opening scene i think that's important in other words he can't have the realization in connecticut mm-hmm. he has he has to come back to the dinosaur and he has to have the dinosaur fall apart because it has to be demonstrated that he has um, realized that he can't make his life about putting together fossils. He has to make his life about something, something living. Um, so anyway, so that's that's just that's not, that's begging the question. It's just telling you he falls in love with her because he's supposed to, because that's what the genre does. Um, I think I think the second answer though is a, is a little more um, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to say profound, but explain to me if you can how people fall in love. Explain to me how you can make a rational explanation for what is fundamentally an irrational act. We don't generally fall in love by arguing ourselves into a position. We fall in love because something mysterious has happened. And I think at the end of that film, when he says he has an aha moment, I've just realized that was the best day of my life. And we don't know how much time has passed. We don't know how long he's been back working, working on the dinosaur. And, 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 then, and then my third answer would be to kind of go back to the connection of Midsummer Night's Dream. Whenever I teach Midsummer Night's Dream, I, I always say to students, um, we don't believe in fairies, right? But we believe in hormones. And what Midsummer Night's Dream is about is about what happens when the hormones kick in. And that's who the fairies are. And so I think that that's, she is the, um, the id to his ego. Mm-hmm. And and in order for him to f- be fully integrated at the end, he has to he has to realize that what has happened with her has actually been transformative. It takes a while to come to that realization, but but he does. Um, but I can't I can't argue anybody into saying that's a good resolution. Right, because because and, and I would say the only the only counter I would have to that is also unsatisfactory, which is only that I've spent my entire life watching and believing people falling in love in movies, and I didn't buy it. Like that's <laughs> like that's all. I guess it's like I don't I. I don't know, you know, and, and, but that's not a very good answer either. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think you just sort of see things in different ways. And because I would say, I mean, you could also say him saying, I just realized that was the best day of my life or whatever that, well, he said yeah. that cause it was in the script. Like, like you got to show me it though. Like, I don't, I like, I don't know. I don't know. Like I, it, I just and so those are the things that took me and and I actually I liked what you said about sort of the suspension of disbelief. There were lots of things that took me out of the movie. I think yeah. that's what it was. And yeah. and I will I will fully admit that that almost everything I named is potentially my baggage or the world that I live in in 2020. And yeah. I realized this movie is uh what 
80 years after, yeah, <laughs> you know, 80 yeah, years yeah. later. Yeah. So it's like, I, I totally realize that Howard Hawks is not thinking about 2020 when he's making this movie. They're not thinking about that. Um, but, but, but I will say this one, one of my favorite things in watching a movie is the sort of just feeling enveloped by the media, yeah. by the medium. And like this one, there just kept being things where I was like, I, I, became aware of me watching a movie and feeling like, I don't know. And I don't feel that it's not because the movie's old. Like I don't, it, that's no, not right. a thing. It, there were just a number of things. And I, I will admit part of it might be that I just, I, like I said, I don't love Catherine Hepburn that much. So it yeah. might just be like, every time I see her, I'm, I, I know that that's Catherine Hepburn. I, that's not, she's not Susan Vance. And maybe that's it. I don't know. Well, you know, if it makes you feel any better, as you probably know, Sam, your your um, uh, the contemporary audience wasn't taken by the film either. Right. I mean, it's it, it, it's interesting because you know they they did test screenings as they always did, and uh, the film did great in the test screenings. Um, it got it got pretty strong reviews, um, but it 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 was a flop, and it was it was as you all probably also know, it was the film that got Hepburn labeled box office poison. Right. Uh, she'd had a couple of kind of weak performances, weak reviews before this. And then this was the film that the only reason she really got, she, she really, she was actually responsible for reviving her career because she, she bought her way out of her contract. And then she arranged to, um, to be in Philadelphia story two years later with Cary Grant and um, Jimmy Stewart. And uh, that was her comeback film. And as an aside, since we're talking about films that bother us, mm -hmm. Even though, in many respects, I love the Philadelphia story, I am bothered by the way it treats alcoholism. Huh. And, 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 and that is a film I actually am not sure I can revisit, because even though I think that, that the three of them together are, are fantastic, um, it's just the way, it, the, the way it deals with alcohol. I, just, I, I, I have the same reaction to that that you have to some of the mental uh, illness issues, <laughs> health issues in this film. So how does this, because I've only seen this the one time this week, how does this film stand up to rewatch in terms of, is this the kind of thing where as you watch it again, you're, you, you're noticing different things. I mean, cause it is fast. Like there are, there are, there's, I, my memory of watching it is there's lots of even talking over each other where you're yeah. like, there's so much happening and they, they, I mean, they, they pound it into such small spaces that, I mean, does this, do you catch things on rewatch? Do you, do you notice things you didn't notice? Yeah, yeah you, you notice things you didn't notice before, but also what I find myself doing and rewatching is I just find myself um, reveling in the lines that I love. So okay. I, I irritated my wife last night because as we were lying in bed trying to go to sleep, I kept laughing because I kept thinking of, <laughs> I kept thinking of one of my favorite lines in the film, which was appropriate for going to sleep. It's where um, where David says, uh, the things I've been doing today, I could just as well do with my eyes shut. Uh, which which means, and, and that's, that's another connection to Midsummer Night's Dream, right? The, the other way in which, is, to me, is a film about suspending disbelief and why it's so much at night and in the woods is because he is, in fact, going through a kind of dream state. Mm -hmm. and, and, and not to put too much of a Freudian spin on it, but there's a sense in which um, he, in, in which he has to experience in a, a kind of an alternative reality in order to come in order to readjust to actual reality. Um, mm -hmm. I will say, though, that watching it again, maybe for the, I don't know, fourth or fifth time, um, I, I do feel that um, the jail scene goes on too long. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, uh, so it, it, I, there are play things that drag a bit, and, and I don't really like the Gogarty character. Um, yeah. he, he brings me out of the film a little bit as well. And I have to say, there are even on the first watch, there are some some smaller moments that are very very funny, like when they when they're going to cross the river and they sort of fall all the way in and then they swim back to the bank that they started on and why didn't you cross the river and then the subsequent scene when they're drying themselves off and she burns one of his socks yes and and he's like like, oh whatever and she just throws the other one in too exactly yeah yeah so like like yeah and we haven't even talked about um one of my favorite scenes i i love the dinner scene i i love I love uh, the, the the major trying to engage uh, Huxley in conversation, and um, he's giving all the wrong answers, right? Because uh, you know, I hear you were horribly mauled in Malaysia. I've never been to Malaysia. I, I, I just love the way he and he and Susan are working at cross purposes, and then the way he stalks George with a spoon. Um, right, who, and and uh, yeah, and and yeah. what's great is. Um, I'm frustrated in that scene, but I think I'm I'm frustrated every time he stands up because yeah. I sort of feel like I'm the major. Like, can we just have this conversation? And all of a sudden, he stands up and leaves again. And you're like, what's you know? Like, it's yeah. I, it's that's a very it's a very funny scene. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it's another scene you know that reinforces the sexual theme because he's doing this this leopard mating call. Um, the, mm-hmm. the, the major is so. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to talk about in terms of uh, bringing up baby? Well, I guess I, I guess one thing I wanted to say is that um, comedy in general and uh, physical comedy in particular has um, often a necessary uh, function about reminding us of our human limitations. Um, that, that's one of the ways when I've taught comedy, especially a film like this and Shakespeare as well, um, physical comedy reminds us that we are incarnated beings. Uh, and, and David is a character who, as I suggested earlier, is kind of living in his head. Uh, she's somebody who actually helps him get in touch with living in his, in his body. Um, but as an aside, one of the things I love about the film is the, the way that she identifies him as Cary Grant without saying he's Cary Grant, right? Mm-hmm. He takes, off his, takes off his glasses. Oh, David, you're so handsome without your glasses. Um, and... Of course, there's there's several things going on there. One is um, the glasses are reminiscent of uh, Harold Lloyd, the great silent film comedian. Um, but they're also, and this is something I just discovered recently, they're also reminiscent, I should realize this, they, they, uh, they, they're the same kind of glasses that John Ford, the great director, uh, wore. And Hepburn uh, had a kind of a love-hate relationship with Ford. Uh, he directed her in Mary of Scotland a few years before. Uh, and... Um, <laughs> And the third point is has gone simply out of my head. So well, so um, the, the, the the to me, what's, what's interesting is that um, he's reminded of, as one one critic says, the limitations of our our creatureliness. Um, and so to me, that's sort of you know, you talked earlier about the arc of the character. That that's the arc, his arc. But I think that's the 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 larger lesson in a sense that comedy kind of teaches, especially mm-hmm. pratfall pratfall comedy. So I, I, I like comedies that are both dumb and smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, and to me, that's, that's why I like Monty Python. Um, you know, I, I, I like a comedy that on the one hand can have a summarizing Proust contest and on the other hand can have the fish slapping dance. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I, so I want to close with that with my, I just, as you were talking about 
physical comedy. One of the oddest, but I just found really funny physical comedy moments. And it's not from either of the two main stars. It's the first time we see the major coming and he's at the like half door and he starts to climb over and kind of get stuck. And then, uh, then the aunt comes in and he, and she's wondering why he's there. And it's, it's such a strange moment, but like, but that part I find oddly believe it actually reminds me of their scenes in, um, in the, the American version of the office where, where, um, Steve Carell as Michael Scott will like do something physically and realize he's like, like he'll put his leg up on a desk and, you know, like to talk to somebody, but realize the desk's a little too high, but now you've committed to that. Yeah, so you're yeah. just kind of stuck in this weird position. And I, I just, that is a moment I will remember forever. It just struck me as so funny. It's such a weird choice that doesn't even necessarily match the what you end up learning about the character. Or I don't know. I don't know. Like it was just it's just a weird yeah, moment. Yeah. That I found it very funny. <laughs> well, well, Hawks's critique of his own film was that there were too many crazy people in it. Right. So I, the, 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 I'm not sure that's entirely true. I think the aunt, the aunt and the lawyer were pretty normal. But of course, it was Miss Miss Swallow. But still, he said he thought that was maybe why it didn't work. That there were too many people behaving insanely. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, so, what do you have to to follow this up for us? Well, I think we're going to do a significant shift of, in tone and uh, time period, Sam. Um, I want I want to revisit a film that I've only seen once, but was very impressed by. It's the 2010 French film of of Gods and Men. Um, it's uh, set in Algeria. And it's based on an actual historical event during the 1996 Algerian Revolution, a uh, community of monks who have been living uh, in harmony with their Muslim neighbors uh, have to make a decision about whether or not to leave the country because of uh, political violence. So um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty serious film. I'll, I'll warn people. I don't think it's as quite as hard as first performed, but it, but it's a film that raises some really serious issues about what it means to. Um, uh, to serve the world in, uh, in in service to Christ. Wow. Well, I mean, I've I've heard again. This is a movie haven't I haven't seen, but I have heard of uh, and heard really great things about. So I'm very excited to uh, to watch this. Well, Barrett, thank you for uh, joining me in this conversation. And again, I was really nervous. I talked to my brother yesterday, who's a big fan of of this movie. And I said, I just feel bad. Like I just, I just didn't land. So uh, this was really great. And like I said, I, I deeply appreciate it. And that's actually what I want this project to be about is like, let's watch stuff and sort of see how we react to it. And you're not, not everything's going to land with everyone. So. Well, I, and, and, okay. I think, and I think I may have said this in the past, Sam, I think the comedies are particularly problematic. I'm hundred percent with you on talking about the subjectivity of comedy. And I may have said before that one of the things that led me to distrust Ebert for many years, Roger Ebert, was his favorable review of Kingpin, because I do not get the Fairley brothers. I don't think they're funny at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. All right. Well, that's all the time that we have. We will be back next week to talk about the 2010 film of Gods and Men. Barrett, thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. Have a great weekend. All right. We'll catch you next week in the video store. <laughs>